academics take themselves very seriously. It's like they're the priests of knowledge, and they're doing really important stuff, although tomorrow nobody will agree with them. I mean, none of these ideas last. We're just doing the best we can. You know, I tell people, I said, look, 200 years ago, we didn't even have toilet paper. We're not a really smart creature. You know, we're just apes. And the idea that we're going to find the truth of the universe, you know, we're just basically hairless gorillas. You know, we, we set these absurd goals and take ourselves so seriously. Imagine you're living in a world that has no concept of beauty or guilt. You only work four hours a day, and most of the time you're laughing loud, and you and your family is considered the happiest people. This is the world of the Pidaha, Daniel Everett, lived with the indigenous Pidaha in the Brazilian Amazonian Basin for almost eight years and studied them since 1977. Originally, he went to this tribe as a missionary to translate the Bible into their language. But instead of turning the Pidaha into Christians, their way of living and just believing what they see or who they know changed his life completely. He turned to atheism, got divorced from his former wife and went on to be a famous linguist. This podcast brings you stories from and about people who stepped into the unknown. Stories about fear, uncertainty, the illusion of security or... I don't know. Let's see what it will be about. My name is Katarina Bayer and I will host you on this journey into the unknown. book, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, Life and Language in the Amazonian Jungle, you write, among the Piraha, there is no sign of depression, chronic fatigue, extreme anxiety, panic attacks, or other psychological disorders that are so common in our industrialized countries. The Piraha are exposed to constant danger. Their life expectancy is far shorter than ours. And I read in your book that they only sleep a few hours a day. How do they manage to be far healthier than we are? Their health is dependent on their psychology, their diet, their exercise. Um, and they, they feel very much at home in their environment. Um, and they don't fear their environments. Uh, they know that they are capable of handling anything in their environment. The Pinaha are active uh, almost all day, every day. Um, they're either hunting or fishing or gathering food from the jungle or they're laughing and playing in the village. Um, and sleep is not a priority. Um, they watch a lot of animals. And uh, Pinaha took me to uh, the jungle one time and showed me a big termite hill at night. And he said, see how they're working all night long and they work all day long? He said, that's how we want to be. Um, and uh, so, so it is a value to, for the 
the majority of the village to always be awake and people take naps at different times. But it's this social context and connection between everyone, their mastery of their environment, uh, their lack of fear. These things lead, for, lead them to a very healthy lifestyle. When you started your way with the Pidaha, you started as a missionary, and now you're an atheist. Can you say due to which reasons you changed your belief and which view on religion in total you have right now? Yes, I went to the Pidahas as, uh, as an evangelical fundamentalist Christian. I believe the Bible literally, um, and I raised my children to believe the Bible literally. So when I got to the Pidaha, I was um, the epitome of the American evangelical Christian. And um, when I started with them and they would show little interest in what I had to say, I thought, well, I'm not expressing it well. And that was certainly partially true because I was learning the language. But one day a Pitaha man came in and there were several other men with him sitting around and he said, Dan, we really like you and we know that you're trying to tell us about Jesus, but we really don't want to hear about Jesus. We're not interested in Jesus. Uh, we're not Americans. You know, we do what we do and you do what we do. So, uh, and you do what you do. So I then realized that they would ask me questions. They would say, you know, when you saw Jesus, did he look like us or did he look like you in skin color? And I said, well, I, you know, I never saw Jesus. There are some people who say he looks like he looks brown and other people who said, say he was white. Um, and they said, oh, you never saw him. Did your father see him? And I said, no, my father never saw him. And who saw them? Who saw him that you know? And I said, no one has ever seen him. No one alive has ever seen him. And they said, you know, why are you telling us about him then? I mean, this just didn't make any sense to them that you would talk about something that you had no contact with, that you had never seen directly. Um, and so the other thing that caused me to really rethink, I mean, first of all, they made it clear that he was not fulfilling any kind of need in their lives. I thought that they would be waiting for the message of salvation and so happy to get it. But they said, you know, it's irrelevant. Um, it's fine for you to do that. Um, but then there was also the fact that they were always asking me questions like that one about where I got the source of my my evidence, and I really didn't have good answers. They they have a lot of, um, I mean, they even have verb suffixes that tell you whether you got this from hearsay or you directly observed it or you inferred it. Um, so evidence is very important to them, and I realized I didn't have the evidence so, so not only did I not have the evidence I felt that they required for beliefs, but the point of Christianity, aside from saving people from hell, you know, many Christians think that's the main reason, but I never really, I mean, that's fine, I believed in hell at the time, but my main reason for going was to give them the opportunity to have a better life. To, to feel at peace with the environment, to feel uh, certain about their future. And then I realized 
none of this is necessary because it's superfluous. They already feel at home in their environment. They're already extremely happy, more so than most missionaries and certainly more so than most Christians I had ever known. Um, you know, as I stopped to think about it, I realized if Christians are the evidence for the gospel, the evidence is not very strong because there simply isn't enough change and difference in the Christian population from the regular population. They're not, and I, be, I began to realize that for me, they're no, they're no more moral than anybody else, and they're no more happy, sometimes very less, much less happy. So uh, I began to question my faith and say, you know, this really, I don't have the evidence for it. It doesn't produce the results that I had thought that it produced. You know, really, what am I doing believing this stuff? I mean, they seem a lot happier than me, and they're a lot less burdened by guilt. Um, so I'm now an atheist. I, I gave up my faith uh, entirely, and and um, I wasn't a Christian before. You know, I, I didn't. I was not raised in a Christian family. I was raised by, um, you know, an alcoholic father, and my mother died young, and nobody went to church, and. Um, no, you know, people thought that was silly. And then when I was a teenager, that's when I became a Christian and was con converted by a missionary family who worked in the Amazon. So that's why I wanted to go there. So, so I was a Christian probably for 20 years, uh, maybe 25. But my, my doubts started coming very early on with my work with the Pinaha. What is interesting to me is I mean, you write in your book that they usually don't speak about the past, regrets, or the future. And also, religion is something imaginary. And when I think about modern things like social media, yoga, or spirituality, this is also imaginary. Why do you think that we Western people live so much in this imaginary world and they don't do? Well, first of all, we they don't have access to all the electronics we have access to or the um, and they don't tell fictional stories of the past or fictional stories of the future. Um, they live in the present. They have what I've called an immediacy of experience principle, which is very strong in their culture. And But they don't fear things. Death is a natural thing. There's just no reason for them to believe in all these myths and things. Um, Brazilians, uh, as well as American missionaries, tell them all sorts of stories that they find incredulous. I mean, and that they're incredulous. They find unbelievable these stories. So um, they find us very strange that we that we are superstitious. I mean, this Amazonian hunter gatherer group finds American missionaries to be very superstitious, as well as Brazilians, Brazilian um, Christians. Um, so so they don't really see any any need in their own lives for these beliefs. Um, you know, celebrity guilt. One of the, I mean, the, to me, the greatest, most positive component of Pitaha society is the absence of guilt. Um, they change names frequently, and this works to their advantage because um, if I get back to the village tomorrow, many people will be using different names. And if I call them by the name they had when I was there, they'll say, you talking to me? That's not my name. Um, but um, 
And then somebody else will say, that was his name long ago, but it's a used name. He threw it away. He's got another name now. And it, and very often they refuse to take responsibility for anything that was done under that old name. You know, so... Um, they invent themselves new. Yeah, they reinvent themselves on a regular basis. But So there are two reasons why they don't... Several reasons why they don't feel guilt, as far as I can tell. First of all, the concept doesn't make much sense. It, there's no utility in it for them. Guilt has come to us largely through religion. Um and and the feeling that we're somehow bad people. They don't think they're bad people. They don't think of people as good or bad, you know? I mean, they can characterize somebody as having a bad head when they do mean things, but they don't say that one group of people is better than another or that, you know, everything I do in the course of my life is just what I did. Some of it may not be very good, and society will let me know that, um, other things nobody will know but me, and why should I feel guilty about those things? Um, and that's a Pinaha philosophy, and it's very difficult for those of us who come from religious cultures, even when we're, we were raised atheists, to... Um, um, it, it's very difficult for us to get away from guilt. So, for first of all, it's a foreign concept. Second, they change names. Uh, and they start new periods in their life. And third, they simply do not talk about the distant past um, or the distant future. And, you know, sometimes a guy will come back from the field and tell me that he's he's really missing a friend who died. So they do know about the past. Um, or, you know, he's he will ask me, you remember when this happened? But they don't normally talk about those sorts of things. Most of their discourse is about the present and the things that are happening right now. I don't think that's very different from us. Um, we we have historians. Uh, they don't have historians. They don't see a need for history in that sense. Um, so it's a very healthy environment. It's a very healthy society. And, um, um, you know, they... They much, they very much enjoy um, their bodies. Um, they, they like all the th all the things that have to do with the flesh. They enjoy those things. They like to eat. They eat all they can when they have food. They're never going to gain weight because they never, you know, they're always exercising and they don't always have food. Um, you know, they have uh, very uh, healthy sexual lives, which they talk about frequently and opening. I mean, it's not. This is just not a matter of, but they have some modesty, but not a not a great deal, not compared to us, and certainly no no guilt about this. Uh, this is not to say that they're perfect people, and there are some things that they do, you know, maybe stealing something from me that I wish they did feel guilty about, but um, they steal it from me because they think I have plenty, and how I'm not going to miss it, and actually they're right. Uh, you know, if they steal something from me while I'm out in the village, it will never be anything of significant value. I mean, they would never steal, uh, for example, my tape recorder. Uh, they might take a package of cookies that I left at the side to have with my coffee later. That they might take, but I can live without that, you know. I mean, and so they only take things like that. So so they... they they have this incredibly healthy psychological life, which is very appealing to me. And 
when I'm with them, I'm, ext- I'm somebody visited me in the village um, from my university when I was at Pittsburgh. And they said, you're a totally different person here. You seem so relaxed. And at Pittsburgh, you, you always seem tense and, and angry or something. And I, I said, well, this is just extremely relaxing place. I can't get angry here. There's nothing to get angry about. There's no competition. There's no um, compunction to, to, to do certain things except do your job while you're there. I understand that the Pidaha had a, an amazing influence on you. Is there anything except like changing your religion that you see in daily life that you totally changed after coming back living with them? Yeah, many things. And my children too. We get around when we're together. Um, we talk very often in Pidaha and certainly a lot in Portuguese about about changes. One small thing is I used to be afraid of bees and spiders and things like that. And I, I don't even pay attention to those things anymore. I'm not, I'm totally not worried about it. You know, I'll be talking to somebody and some big bee will come buzzing around us and they get really scared. And I'm thinking, what is, what do you, I don't even understand what they're scared of, you know, what's, because I've gotten used to it. And I, I also, when I go for walks in the woods, Uh, even though we only we have almost no poisonous snakes in Massachusetts, I'm always watching the ground um, because I've had so many experiences with snakes. In terms of my values, um, I don't know if I've ever feared death, but I certainly don't fear it. You know, one of the nice things about getting older is that uh, you just don't fear these things as much anymore. But also, it's the perspective of the pitaha, the idea that this is just a natural part of life. And, you know, you can look at your your children or your family and, and realize that uh, I'm not going to be around forever. But, you know, some it really doesn't matter. You just enjoy what you have right now. And, um, uh, you know, academics talk about the importance of their work for posterity. Who's going to read my work in a hundred years? And to me, the answer to that is who cares? I enjoy writing this stuff and I enjoy, you know, getting invited to speak places and all this. But what difference does it make to me whether anybody ever reads this stuff when I'm dead? I mean, I'd like to think sometimes that it will help somebody. Sometimes I get, actually frequently I get emails from people in different parts of the world telling me how valuable uh, Don't Sleep There Are Snakes was for them. Um, And that's great, but, you know, I'm not going to be around forever, and so they're not going to have anybody to write, and I'm not going to care about it. Uh, I won't be here to care about it. So um, I just enjoy my life right now, and I do the things that I do because they give me great satisfaction and great pleasure. And I do believe that I've learned these things from the Pitaha. You know, you say that people write to you because um, it influenced them what you what you wrote, and I can say it for myself that also, whenever I open your book, I I reflect on myself why I stress myself with things that are not really important. So your research actually gives something to us, but what does it give to them? That's a very good question, uh, and I ask myself that sometimes. You know. When, when I went to the Pitaha, they, malaria was something that was, was killing lots of people. And I took in a lot of anti-malarial medicine, and I worked very hard. My wife and daughter almost died of malaria. I had malaria at least five times. One time I almost died from it. Um, and uh, 
but I was able to contribute dramatically to their health. Um, and also antibiotics and snake venom, anti-venom. You know, I treated snake bites. I treated uh, infections. I treated people who shoved arrows all the way through their arms and got terribly infected. Um, we've sewn up people who, you know, split their foot open with an axe and that kind of thing. So those are all short-term kinds of contributions. Um, but to those people, they can think back. I, w I visited, 10 years ago, I visited a Brazilian community um, on the river near the Pitahá that I hadn't visited for 20 years before that. Um, and um, one of the men, you know, they all called me by name. Everybody knows me. And one of the men called me, says, come with me, uh, Danielle, I want to show you something. So we walked into a room and there was this... Uh, really nice, good-looking 18-year-old boy uh, lying in a hammock. And he said, my boy uh, was dying, and you saved his life. Do you remember that? And um, I didn't. <laughs> he came up. I mean, he talked to me about it, and eventually I, his boy came up, and we were able to, to help him and give him medicine. And he said, every day of my boy's life, I am happy. I'm thankful for you. So these are the kinds of contributions that I have made, um, and there's nothing deeply philosophical about it. I haven't changed their worldview, um, you know. They have just changed yours. Yes, they changed my worldview uh, totally, and well, almost totally, in many, in many, many profound ways. So you were 26 when you first went to them. You already had three children and a wife, and you went to a jungle to a place that you don't know in a in a language that you didn't know. Um, if I think about myself with 26, I would never have done any of them. So can you can you remember and recall how it felt for you back then when you entered this jungle for the first time and heard this language? Yes, the first time I went into the Pitaha was without my family, and this was December of 1977, and the plane landed, and we had a little jungle missionary plane, and it landed, and I was airsick, and I was almost about to throw up. I was just, and I got out of the plane, it was really hot and humid, and I was surrounded by all these people talking in a language I had no idea what it was. But I just started working using the methods that I knew and, and putting phrases together. And, and I was very good mimic, like a parrot, and I could say things back to them even if I didn't understand them. And this impressed them. Um, so I spent some time there getting to know them. The, the first visit, only less than two weeks, only about 10 days. Then I came back in the next year because all kinds of things were going on in the Brazilian government Uh, that caught, that delayed my return. And when I got back the next year, I worked with another fellow for about 10 days again to get it ready for my family. And then the plane brought in my family and flew out with this buddy of mine. And um, I was so excited to show them this place for the first time. And we had had jungle training as a family so my children were really used they spoke portuguese they were really used to uh roughing it and um but there was nothing like it they suddenly had no friends 
They had nobody to talk to. Um, the Pinaha children were just touching them all the time and feeling their clothes and feeling them. And, uh, you know, very often because um, women and men in our societies dress a lot of like, a lot alike, you know, for the Pinaha. It's common for women and men to wear pants and T-shirts and all this sort of thing. So the Pinaha might walk up to somebody like my daughter and feel her top to see if she's male or female. You know, this is not sexual harassment. This is just information. They're just trying to get information. And so these things really, I had two daughters and, and one little boy son. And so these things took a lot of adjustments, uh, but they did extremely well. And within no time, my daughters had friends and were speaking the language far better than I did. Um, and um, I would say that those were some of the best memories we have as a family. And I've I've talked to my kids about it, and my middle daughter, who's a, a doctor of nursing and, and also, uh, you know, a business executive and really successful, she said her favorite memories are lying in the hammock in the village at night with me reading to them by, by kerosene lamp, reading books like um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or The Chronicles of Narnia, um, and, and literature that I thought they should know about. Sometimes even poetry. I read a lot of poetry to my children. And they think these are some of the best memories they had. And, and so they say, well, we wouldn't take our own children there. We would never do that. But, uh, but we're, we're glad we went. We're glad we had the experience. Um, they could have died. Uh, as a Christian, I didn't, I believe that we were all immortal until our task was done. And if my children died, that's what God had in my, that was God's business. Um, I don't have that view now. And I would never take them. So with, with all the information you have now, and also with knowing that sometimes we as Westerners bring diseases to, to indigenous people, if you had the chance again, would you go there again if you were 26 now? Oh, yeah, I would. I, I might be different with respect to my family. I probably would talk to my children more and give them more of a choice. Um, but, you know, the Brazilian government required that we have an entire list of vaccinations and that we see a doctor before we could go out there. So the Brazilian government wouldn't let us out there. The Pinahas fear colds. You know, um, coronavirus would be terrible for them. The flus and colds they fear. So if you get to the Pitaha and you cough or sneeze, they don't like that. They say, uh, why are you sneezing? Do you have a cold? And if they, you do, they're going to be very upset that you came out there because they have no resistance. Colds will kill them. Just a common cold can kill a Pitaha. So they have no resistance to these things. Um, and, and they don't want people out there who are sick. So not only does the Brazilian government require that you show that you're free of certain diseases, after a certain period of time, I had to get a certificate that showed that I didn't have AIDS. They, they really, any new disease, yellow fever, uh, all of these things. Um, and the Pitaha also are inspecting you. They don't want somebody sick coming out to the village. So, um, so far as I know, no one ever got sick because of my family.
you already mentioned that they are happy and in, in German your book, I guess you know, is called The, the Happiest People. And what I read is that um, some psychologists from MIT's Brain and Cognitive Science Department um, did research on the Pidaha and found out that I don't know, they did it with the smile time or something, that they're really the happiest people they ever met. Why do you think they are? You mentioned something already, but has it really to do with not fearing death and just living in the present moment? I think it has to do with those things and it has to do with a lot of other things. Um, so, for example, in, 19, in 2007, I took down a team that included... Um, a PhD student from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who today is a full professor at Stanford University. And I took a professor from MIT. Um, and I took two PhD students, one Dutch and one German from Europe. Who And so we were all there together and everybody had their assigned um, tasks. Um, and several of them are commenting on how uh, much the Pinaha laugh and smile. And uh, one of the people said, uh, these seem like the happiest people in the world. And I said, what, how would you tell that really? How would you judge? How would you evaluate that? And he said, I would just measure the time they spend smiling and laughing and compare that to the time that Americans spend smiling and laughing or any other people. Um, and that's one way to test it. Um, and it could be superficial, you know, but it isn't. I know them now well enough to know that they really are this happy. And um, why are they so happy? Well, again, it has to do with, first of all, they live in a beautiful place. It's difficult to describe how wonderful the Amazon is. It's hot and it's humid and there's malaria and there's snakes. But really, on a day-to-day -day basis, it is a beautiful place, and weather is always great. If you like hot and humid weather and you don't like cold, the weather is always great. You don't have to worry about your clothes or anything like that. So, so life is good for them. They know how to get food. There's plenty of food. They know how to um, take care of their needs. You know, men love to fish. They have to fish to make a living. But just like uh, every man I've ever known, except me, likes to fish, uh, the Pinaha love to fish. And it's a great thing because you, you make your living doing what you love to do. And very few of us can say that. I can say that now. I couldn't say that then. Um, and then there's no guilt. There's no worry about what happened in the past. There's no worry about the future. There's absolutely no fear of death. Nobody's trying to die. Nobody wants to die in the next five minutes, but they're not afraid of it. Um, they're very wise and, you know, about this. And if you hear that a Pinaha has died, which they do, obviously, it won't be because of some silly, stupid mistake on their part. It will be because of disease. Um, uh, you, you watch the Pinaha children and how graceful they are and how Compared to our children, they're quiet. I took my grand, I took my two grandsons, both of whom are married now, uh, to the village when they were little boys, and they were running around naked like everybody else. I have some great photos of them naked, which I want to show it. You know, I show their wives and stuff. But uh, uh, 
they were falling all the time, you know. They didn't cry. They were tough little boys, but they were clumsy compared to Pitaha kids. And Pitaha children take up less room. They're not just, when they run, it's in a very straight line. Their bodies are, the average Pitaha stands with their arms crossed to take up less room. Uh, because in the jungle, if you run like we do with your arms all out, you'll get knocked over, maybe get bitten by a snake. So they always keep themselves close. So they know how to live. They know how to live in their environment. They're well adapted to their environment and they're conscious of themselves. They know, you know, there's a thing called proprioception, which is our sensitivity to our body and where our body is, you know, is my hand, um, you know, where's my hand right now? Well, we tend to know these things, but we don't know them as well as the Pitaha do, which is why we're always bumping our heads and these sorts of things when we're out there. It's just a, it's a great example of cultural adaptation and evolution to fit a particular niche uh, emotionally, socially, and physically. You know, I, I think I remembered now that you uh, wrote in your book or you said it in an interview that they even get like sharp knives or something to play with because then they get used to it. And now I remembered that my mom did the same. So I guess <laughs> she already knew how to prepare me for life. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, our par most, most Western parents would be horrified if they saw their child walking around the kitchen waving a sharp, long knife. But not the Pitahas, um, and apparently not your mother. They also, if somebody starts to walk to the fire, a little child, they'll say, don't, it's hot. But they're not going to pull the child back from the fire. If the child gets burnt uh, on the foot or the hand or something, they won't go near the fire again. It's the best lesson they can learn is with real experience. And so... This is a very important source of knowledge for the Pitaha, is personal experience, what you've done. They don't read about it. They're not told stories about it. They do it. When when you talk about them and what I know that they um, just work a few hours a day and rather sit together and talk and how you told about this amazing place that they're living, why don't you live there? Oh, well, that's a good question, and it has to do with uh, I grew up in the United States, and I was a cult. I, I'm an enculturated American. I like being with the Pitaha, but I I don't have any of their skills. I can't fish. I can't hunt. I don't know. The only reason I can live with them and stay alive is because I have money from my society that enables me to buy food and to. You know, and I can build a simple shelter. You know, I, can, I build a house in the jungle. Nobody else would want to live in the house probably, but I built the house. And um, so I'm not as good at their environment as they are. And, and um, I do have professional aspirations in this country, writing and talking. Um, but it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for me to be told that I was going to live with the Pitahas for the rest of my life. I just would know that I probably wouldn't live very long because I'm not very, um, I'm such a bad fisherman. And uh, <laughs> the Pitaha yeah, women were always asking me if I wanted to have children, Pitaha children and stay there. And I would say, I couldn't take care of my children. I don't know how to do anything. And they would think about it and they would say, yeah, that's right. You don't know how to do anything. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> 
that, that answered their How questions nice. for them. <laughs> um, so you are very well known as a linguist and the the language of the Pidaha is quite different to ours because they don't have words for colors or no no concept of of counting and they are far more like in the present with their language do you think that it makes life more real if you don't have all these concepts that we have or speak so much about things that could happen or ha happened Well, there are two, according to philosophers, there are two basic positions one can take about the world. One can be a realist or one can be a nominalist. And a realist, this sounds bizarre, but the thing that distinguishes a realist is that they believe that abstract objects are real. So if I say the color red, you believe in a concept red and you believe that concept is real. The Pinahas are nominalists. They don't believe in abstract things. They believe that what you see is what you get. So this, I might call, this looks like blood, because they don't have a word for red. And this looks like blood, and this looks like blood. But there's no overarching concept. They're just, they're just descriptions. They're not, they don't have any concept of red. They can see three, three Brazil nuts and three fish, and they will say, you know, That's a couple of Brazil nuts and that's a couple of fish, but they don't think that they share this common property of threeness, that there's three. So in a sense, if you think about it, the Pinahas have a philosophical position that was largely the same position as, say, David Hume, the great one of the greatest philosophers in the English language. Um, so it's not an ignorant position that they have, but they don't believe in abstractions. They believe in what they can sense and he what they see in the here and now. And um, whether you think that's right or wrong philosophically, or whether you can even decide what's right or wrong philosophically, the overall effect, their philosophy, their relationship to life, leads them not to worry about abstract possibilities. It's not that they're stupid and they can't think abstractly. David Hume was in, was brilliant. He could definitely think abstractly. He just didn't believe in the reality of abstract things. Um, and nobody would call him stupid. So, the you know, I have people say, well, if the Pitaha don't believe in this, they must be stupid. Well, then David Hume is also stupid. And this doesn't make any sense. So... What I can say is that I have worked, I worked with over 20 different Amazonian groups, in, including the Pitaha. None of them compare in happiness to the Pitaha. And I, and so it's not just an Amazonian thing. This is a particular set of cultural values that have evolved over time from this people. And it is unique to these people uh, of no among the groups I've ever worked with. I'm not saying that there couldn't be somebody else that has this. So yeah, I'm thinking of, I am developing a course on happiness that I plan to start teaching for business majors. Uh, what does it mean to be happy in life? And it's, it's not money. No, it sounds so interesting because when you already were talking about it, I was like, okay, do I need sharp knives? I only speak in the present and I need more humidity and then I am happier. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an adaptation to all those things. You know, um, any city that I'm in, 
I feel happy. And one of the things about the peanut house, I don't feel loyal to any place. I was born and raised in Southern California. Uh, I've lived a long time in Brazil. I lived in England. I lived a year in Germany. I've traveled a lot. I live in Massachusetts. I don't feel loyal to any of those places. If there were an opportunity to move somewhere else that I thought were professionally interesting or interesting for some other reason, I would. I don't feel roots. And the Pitaha's semi-nomadic life in a much smaller space, they're not traveling the whole world, but they're traveling up and down the Mycenae. You know, they they don't feel roots to any particular part of the Mycenae as we feel you know, very often. I've talked to people who've who've never been out of Boston. They just, you know, they were born and raised in Boston. And that's fine. I'm not saying that it's wrong to just like to be in one place and eat one kind of food. And But I enjoy uh, variety. And the Pinaha have directly and indirectly taught me a lot of the values that, that make me happy right now. You just mentioned that you not just research the Pinaha, but other indigenous uh, tribes as well. What... Where does your curiosity for those people come from? It comes from a couple of sources. I grew up on the Mexican border, Southern California. You could see Mexico from my front door. You, We went to Mexico. That's where all the best restaurants were. Everybody I knew spoke Spanish. They also spoke English. But I noticed I didn't speak Spanish. I noticed this early on. When um, we would be playing, say, American football and my Mexican-American friends would be yelling at each other in Spanish, you know, Mira, Jose, Mira, you know, talking to each other. And I thought, I don't know what they're talking about. And I really want to know what they're talking about. So I would start spending more time with them. You know, I love the food, you know, um, which I didn't know it was Mexican food. It was just food, you know. I mean, now I know people call it Mexican food, but for us, it was just food. Um, and and I, I learned to speak Spanish. Um, it's been affected by all my years speaking Portuguese, but I can understand Spanish perfectly and say pretty much what I need to say. Um, that got me interested in languages and diversity and seeing different peoples. And so I find nothing brings me greater joy in the world than to encounter new people. I love nature. I love seeing beautiful mountains and oceans, but none of that excites me as much as new cultures, seeing new people and how people have learned to adapt and live in life. And when you walk into a different group, whether it's in Rome or whether it's in some isolated little Amazonian village, the people's culture is what I find most invigorating and most enjoyable to try to understand. So although I lived with the Pitaha for roughly eight years, I also stayed for months by myself with the Banawa people. And I wrote a large book on the uh, grammar of the Wadi people. And I've worked with many different groups and written articles on many different languages. And it's a great source of satisfaction to, to understand something new about people's lives through their cultures and languages. I want to return back to to one thing we 
already discussed a bit. You know, I'm 35 years now and you can imagine that most of my friends have children or are, are pregnant. And and what I read is that the Peter Hart don't have like <clears throat> a, ch a, a child language in the meaning of a trivialized word, what, words, what we do. And um, as far as I understood, they also would not say it's a child. It's just a smaller human being. I mean, you were there with, with your three children and it must have been a big impact on how they were raised. Do you think that we could learn something about how we should treat our children? Definitely. Um, one of the my afflictions as a parent uh, was, who was an evangelical Christian is that I believed in spanking my children. You know, get a stick and spank them. This was 100% of all evangelical Christians at that period of time, spanked their children. I can't think of anybody who didn't do that. Uh, it was considered being a good Christian parent. Um, the Pitahas hated that, and I couldn't spank my children around them. You know, I would. My oldest daughter says she remembers me telling her, "Meet me a hundred yards out in the jungle, and I'm going to give you a spanking." You know, and and she would tell all her friends, "My dad's going to hit me," and so they would all follow out there. And then I would never spank her, of course, because... They How were, smart. Yeah, yeah, it was really smart. But so they taught me that uh, that's a pretty stupid thing to do. They just didn't understand it at all, why you would hurt somebody weaker than yourself. You know, why would you do that? Um, it's not to say that they're perfect. You know, people lose their temper and they hit people. You see that in the Pitaha, you see it everywhere else. It's not a good thing. But I remember... Um, And I talk about this in, in the book. Um, I was walking over to see, I was walking over to another little settlement around where we were through the jungle. And I heard a loud uh, gunshot. You know, they had a shotgun. And uh, when I got there, there was a dog dying. And a, a man was kneeled down by the dog and he was crying. And I said, what happened? And he said, my brother shot my dog. And I said, why did he shoot your dog? And he said, uh, he was drinking and my dog was getting his dogs, was attacking his dogs. And he said, I love my dog. And I said, what are you going to do now? And he said, what do you mean? I said, are you going to do anything to your brother because he shot your dog? And he said, no, he shouldn't have shot my dog, but he's my brother. I, can't, I wouldn't do anything to my brother. Uh, so... This concept of vengeance and discipline physically, these sorts of things, uh, their view, as I put it together, life is short. Um, why would you want to fill it with vengeance and, and hurting people? Um, so there's this famous book about the Yanomami by Napoleon Chagnon, an Ameri you know, who at one time was the most famous anthropologist in the world. He's dead now. And his book is called The Fierce People, Yanomami, The Fierce People. Um, it's been very controversial because of that title, because a lot of people don't like to think that there is a fierce people, you know. Uh, but if I were going to, you know, I, I often thought that I worked with the gentle people, uh, not the fierce people. Um, they're very different people. That could just be because I have a different view of life than Chagnon does. But I don't think so. There are a lot of murders among the Yanomami from his records. Um, others might dispute that. But uh, 
the Pinahas just don't have violence in the day-to-day life of the tribe. There just isn't that. The main thing you hear at any time of the day is laughter. And I mean really loud laughter, not just chuckling laughter, but people screaming with laughter. Just so, you know, things are so funny. And I have a very similar sense of humor, you know. So we sit around and we laugh a lot. We talk about things. They're not, they're not formulaic jokes whether you know you've got this structure to a joke it's just sarcasm and seeing funny things and what happens in the world around us and um you know some of it's body humor some of it is you know um like if i if i walk over to see everybody and i stumble and bump my head well they're going to break out laughing they're going to find that extremely funny you know so and they find it funny for two reasons. First of all, they want to show me that there's no reason to feel humiliated. This is just funny. So they don't want to humiliate people. Second, um, they they just find it funny. So you're in this environment in which uh, people don't take themselves too seriously. I mean, it sounds so interesting what you're telling and so nice, but there were things that I read in your book that also shocked me a bit, to be honest. Like you write about this woman that dies giving birth because her husband wasn't there to help and the others didn't help or about the other incident where you tried to save a baby's life and then uh, his or her own father killed it. What did you do in such moments and did you want to like change their way of living together because this was also heartbreaking for you? Yeah, those were very difficult things, and they're not the only things. I mean, I didn't tell everything in the book, but uh, when I was taking anthropology for the first time in 1972, this question came up. My anthropology teacher uh, asked, what would you do if you saw, you know, them hurting somebody for a ritual, you know? Would you try to stop it? This is the this is the problem of the anthropologist, to try to take genital mutilation. You know, if you're an anthropologist and you're seeing this happen, do you just study it or do you try to stop it? It's a constant issue for anthropologists and that people make different decisions. Uh, but when it comes to um, this woman who died on the beach, the Pinaha have a, a very unusual view of survival and um, how much help you should need for survival. You know, it's possible that when they heard her screaming, they could already tell that there was nothing that could be done. I mean, I don't think that's true, but that could be their perspective. I mean, I think they might have thought nothing else can be done. Um, I offered to go down, not that I'm an experienced midwife. My wife offered to go down, and neither one of us had really delivered children, but we wanted to see if we could help, and they were told, absolutely not, we cannot go down there. Nobody else would go help her, uh, as I say. You know, she she was alone, and um, and the next morning she was dead on the beach. And everybody lamented this fact, you know, she was such a nice person, and I'm so sorry that she died. And But it wasn't like they thought they could do anything about it. I find that very strange, you know, but this is because I have grown up looking at things in one way, and they've grown up looking at things in another. There was a baby that was very sick. Its mother, who had been this beautiful young woman, um, got some disease that left her skin and bones, and she died. And her baby survived also skin and bones. And the people felt there's no mother around to nurse the baby, so the baby's going to die. And I said, 
let us take care of the baby. And they said, okay, fine. So we would work, take turns, and we're up all night long working really hard on this baby. And we thought it was starting to make progress taking milk that we mixed for it. Uh, we None of the Pitaha woman would give us breast milk because they needed it for their own children. But we made powdered milk and we we tried to, and we gave it sugar and things we, you know. And one day we decided to go off for a walk and we left the baby with its father. And when we got back, everybody was talking loudly and uh, I smelled alcohol very strongly in the air and the baby was dead. And I realized they had forced alcohol down the baby's throat. And I said, the baby's dead. What happened to the baby? And the father said, it was suffering. It was in pain. It needed to die. It was dying anyway. It was not going to live. And I got really mad. I said, well, I think it was going to live. And they said, you were just hurting it. You know, it, you were just making it hurt longer. So um, that was really hard for me. But it showed me that, um, you know, my first experience with medical ethics, people have different views on life. And, for example, I might have mo- medicine that could stop malaria or medicine that could stop diarrhea or medicine that could stop infections. But I can't force people to take it. They may just be afraid. of. The- we even see that in this in the world today as people are afraid of the cor- coronavirus vaccine. How can you make people put something in their body that they're afraid of? Maybe in the context of because it protects others, not just themselves. But among the Pitahas, I was not in a position to order anyone, and nor did I feel it was correct to order anyone to take medicine just because I thought it would be good for them. I might give you a malarial injection and you have an allergic reaction that I wasn't anticipating and you're dead. And I forced you to take it. Well, I'm responsible for your death. So that is not a responsibility that anybody else should take. People have to choose these things for themselves. There are a lot of hard lessons among the Pitaha, although by and large they're gentle people. You know, just I wouldn't say that uh, the people of Vienna are thieves, right? Nobody would say that Vienna is a city of thieves, but there are thieves in Vienna. You know, you will get robbed in Vienna. Some people get robbed every day wherever you're at. You can't categorize people by individual incidents in their life or individual people who live against the values of the culture. So there are Pitaha who murder. There are Pitaha who rape. There are Pitaha who are cruel. But almost nobody is. You know, the ones that you find like that are so rare that you would never characterize the people as having those traits. Due to um, different reasons, as far as I know, you haven't been with the Peterhof for quite a while. Are you wishing and planning to go back and visit your friends? Oh, I would very much like to go back to see the Peterhofs. The main reason I can't go back is because of the controversy that was caused. A New, Yorker, a New York Times newspaper reporter called me about 10 years ago, and he said several Brazilian linguists have sent a letter to the Brazilian Indian Foundation saying that your research is racist because you say these people don't have recursion, which how on earth could that be racist? But um, it isn't. Um, So this made it because I'm an American and they were Brazilians. 
how can we let this gringo come back who's saying racist things about our indigenous peoples? Of course, they never asked the Pitaha. The Pitahas would have, have want me to come back as much as possible. My ex-wife lives down there near them, and she sends me little videos of them. And they always they ask, when are you coming to see us? We haven't seen you. It's been so long. Come back and see us. Technically, I could go to places where it's not their reservation and see them because I'm a permanent resident of Brazil. But this would also this could cause problems. Uh, you know, the ironic thing is they live on a reservation that I am the one who got given to them. <laughs> I worked very hard and went down with the Indian agency and helped identify all the land that was theirs and give it to them. And now people, uh, because I've described aspects of their grammar, uh, so that's made it very difficult for me to go back. Um, you know, right now uh, with Brazil's COVID situation and they would they would not let me anywhere near the Pitaha, and that's right. Um, uh, you know, so so there's no way I can go back until COVID is sort of resolved. Um, and I don't know. I would like to go back, um, but um, academics is a strange enterprise, which is um, I tell academics they're very much like missionaries because they don't really make any serious money right? Academics are not wealthy. They live a good life, but they're not wealthy. Um, their entire careers are built on egos. One person saying, this guy's great and this guy's not so great. And um, so the dynamics of academics are are very unlike the Pitaha. Uh, they're very unlike uh, working in a factory. Uh, you know, I mean, if you work in a, in a, Volkswagen factory, you're not necessarily trying to be recorded as the greatest person with a wrench in history. You know, you're just you're just doing your job, and then you go out and have a few beers with your friends, and you get home, watch a little TV, and do it again the next day. Academics take themselves very seriously. It's like they're the priests of knowledge, and they're doing really important stuff. Although tomorrow nobody will agree with them. I mean. None of these ideas last. We're just doing the best we can. You know, I tell people, I said, look, 200 years ago, we didn't even have toilet paper. We're not a really smart creature. You know, we're just apes. And the idea that we're going to find the truth of the universe, you know, we're just basically hairless gorillas. You know, we, we set these absurd goals and take ourselves so seriously, we could learn a lot of lessons from the Pitahas as academics, for example, or intellectuals or politicians. I mean, politicians actually can affect people's lives, usually for the worse. Let's, let's not take ourselves so seriously. That's not to say that I don't take my work seriously and want to do the very best job I can, but I realize it's just the best job that I can do. You know, I'm I'm not the smartest person that ever lived, and the smartest person who ever lived is really not all that smart compared to uh, what you could imagine. We're a recently evolved species. We're, Homo erectus lived almost two, lived over two million years. I'm, you know, at least right around two million years. We haven't even lived three hundred thousand years yet. You know, so we got a long ways to go as a species before we attain our potential, and. Um, even then, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. When you say we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously, I also thought that we are afraid to really laugh loud. 
and they are not. Anyway, when when you come to these things about being like the best you can be in our society, it's a lot about, you know, fulfilling all your potential and having concepts about who you should be. And as I understood, they don't even have a concept of, be of beauty. And weirdly enough, the last weeks I thought about that most of the people I know or met wouldn't say that they're attractive or wouldn't find themselves beautiful. And I'm always struggling with why, why do we have beliefs that make us so unfree? Do you have an answer for that? Well, one thing I do know, uh, comparison with the Pitaha, is that, is that relative personal beauty is a f cultural concept. It's not a natural concept. I mean, it's not, it's not an instinct. People might want to think it's an instinct, but this doesn't exist among the Pitahas. Uh, they look at a person as a whole and they think, is this person lazy? Does this person help people? Does is this person have good characteristics? Are they healthy? Now those are positive values that have, you know, that are measurable. There are very attractive by Western standards Pitaha women and men. I mean, the average Pitaha man is not tall, but he is in great physical conditioning. He looks like he works at a gym all day, every day. He can run barefoot through the jungle for hours. He's symmetrical. You know, these are handsome people, but they don't think about it, you know, that much. Um, they don't think that I'm hands more handsome or ugly. They probably think I'm uglier. If anything, the kids don't like me because I have a beard and they say only dogs have hair on their face, uh, you know, so dogs and other animals. But we are so preoccupied with not just being pretty or handsome, but being prettier or more handsome than other people. This is something, if you think about a relationship that you're in, one of the greatest signs to me of a healthy relationship is that you don't care always how you look. You know, you, you can, I have a friend who was also a missionary, a very funny guy. And when he was going to propose to his wife, he called her at four in the morning and woke her up. And he said, meet me for breakfast at this place, but do not brush your teeth. Do not comb your hair. Do not just come in your nightgown and if, in a robe. And, and you're, you're, you know, so she came, they showed up at the restaurant. He was the same way. He said, could you look at this for every day for the rest of your life? <laughs> and she said, I could. And, and uh, he said, well, I find you beautiful just the way you are. So, uh, that's that's a sign of a very healthy relationship. I was never as creative as he was. That was a really cool thing to do. But uh, as a society, we're not that way. We're not that relaxed with each other. But for the Pinaha, as a society, they're relaxed with each other. You know, I mean, there's also the fact that uh, probably every Pinaha of the same age has had sex with every other Pinaha of the same age. Because that's just something they do. And so everybody is like a family. I mean, you are, really are like in a constant relationship with every other member of the society. So everyone's at home with everyone else. And everybody knows everything about everybody else. And they accept everybody for who they are. And so that's a healthy environment. I mean, uh, at least this knowledge of, of how people are and who they are. Um, and lack of coercion, you know. What the Pinaha, the worst thing you can do is lose your temper. That's like, you can steal things from people, you can um, 
you know, you can sleep with somebody else's spouse, but don't lose your temper. This is the worst thing you can do. So I talk in a loud voice very often because I've been a professor for so long. And when I start to talk to people, I often fall into my professor voice and start talking loud. And the Peter Howell will run over and they'll say, are you angry? No, I'm just talking. Yeah, we're talking really loud. You sound angry. Don't talk loud like that. I mean, you can laugh loud. You can be as loud as you want. Just don't be an angry sort of loud. And and that's a very good, uh, I think, a very good and healthy reaction to uh, to to anger. You you would never hit anyone else. You know, somebody was in the village one time, and a baby was crying, and he said, "What would they say if I went over there and and slapped that baby?" I said, oh, they wouldn't say anything, but they would kill you. <laughs> he said, they would kill me. I said, yeah, why, you have no right to touch a little baby, especially not your baby, but their baby. I, he said, well, how would they kill me? I said, some night when you think you're, everything's okay, an arrow is going to hit you right in the eye. <laughs> he said, really? They're, I said, they're not violent people, but you don't hurt them. You don't hurt their babies. These are not things that we think about very often in the West. Um, There are different attitudes towards violence. Basically, violence is prohibited except in defense of your family. And then, you know, one guy said, are they dangerous? And I said, everybody's got a bow and arrow. That's how they make their living is killing animals. (laughs) I said, yeah, they're very dangerous if they want to be. I said, if he shoots at you, you know, like you see these movies where the Indigenous people come out shooting arrows at the hero and like Indiana Jones and this kind of stuff. The one Pinaha would shoot 30 arrows into him with no problem. He would not get away. These people are good with arrows. That's what they that's what they do. And so you just you just realize that for me it makes me comfortable. I never had a gun anytime I was in the village, even though I knew there were wild animals and all sorts of things. I let the Pinaha take care of me. I'm you know. So I never once had a gun. You know, I take two advices from the part that you just told me now. First, don't lose your temper because I'm really good in uh, (laughs) losing my temper as I'm also a university teacher, so I also speak loud. And the second one is really surround yourselves with people that feel family to you and and you really feel close to because this makes a change. I have three last questions to you. The first one is, what is your biggest fear? My biggest fear is um, not taking care of and being loved by those I love. Um, being responsible to do the things that I've said I will do, uh, especially with regard to my family. I can't worry about them when I'm dead, so I'm, that's not a fear. I don't, I don't fear what's going to happen to anybody I love after I die because... That's the end of me, and I did my bit. So my fear is not doing what I can do while I am alive. What are you currently doing that you still don't know how it will turn out? I'm writing a book on a subject that I've never investigated before in philosophy. Um, When you publish a book, especially after you've published several books, your reputation is only based on your last book. And so if I get it wrong, I'll look like an idiot. So I don't want to get it wrong. And yet I want it to be very helpful and I want it to be unusual. And that desire for it to be unusual is where the danger is. 
the last thing is I have this book here where I put in a lot of quotes that inspired me. So I will run through the pages and you will say, stop at a certain um, moment. I will read you the quote and you just comment on it, whatever comes to your mind first. So I will start now and you say, stop. Stop. Do you want to go left or right? Uh, left. And where do you want to go? It's two, four, six quotes. So which one do you want to pick? Uh, let's go with quote four. Quote four. You are the CEO of your life. Hire, fire, and promote accordingly. That's a very good uh, quote. Um, we are indeed in charge of our own lives. We need to learn to edit our lives, cut out or fire those activities or people in our lives that are really not contributing to our sense of well-being, to our development, um, to our success with our family. So, yeah, not to blame other people for your problems and your bad decisions. Uh, it's easy to blame others, but ultimately we bear the blame if we're happy or sad. or It's a, it's a long, we live a life of choices, and those choices eventually result in who we are at the end of our lives. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back again. If you like this podcast, please share and subscribe. If you're curious to hear more about hunters and gatherers, check out episode number eight, where I talk to Bettina Ludwig about communities without possession, comparison or privacy. You find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or on my website www.intotheunknown.at. Mm -hmm.